uh, I think most people in evangelicalism, when they see a squirrel, thinks of Gene Clyde. It's really strange when you think about it. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. Good to have you with us. It is Monday, the 27th day of February. Tomorrow is the last day of February. Just wanted to point that out. That another month has gone by, and there will be soon only 10 months left in 2023. If you are not aware of the passing of time, you need to be. Scripture tells us our life is but a vapor. We are not guaranteed tomorrow at all. I just heard of a uh, 40-year-old uh, associate pastor at a church, um, where I have friends who passed away on Friday while working out at the gym, leaving behind a wife and four kids. Um, and so, you know, I want to pray for them and their family and pray for the entire church family. But we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Um, it was reported to me that at the last, he was the youth pastor, the college, college pastor. And I have students that are going to school over there, and, and uh, we're in that. But apparently one of the last things he said, as it was related to me, as they were leaving their last meeting last week, was how much he was looking forward to the kingdom of God. And he was talking about the kingdom of God, and now he's in the presence of God. Um, so, I mean, it's a joy for him to... to live as Christ, but to die as gain. Um, but to, uh, to the rest of us, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. And because of that, I plead with you to be reconciled with God. If you have not settled your accounts with God, now is the time. Repent and believe the gospel. Because you are not guaranteed tomorrow. And so I wanted to lead off with that. This is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast dedicated to scripture, history, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about. Webcast Monday through Friday, 7.30 a.m. Mountain, on Twitter, Facebook, and Twitch. And then the audio podcast is available for download wherever you get your podcasts. And as I said, if you can't find Squirrel Chatter on your favorite podcatcher, Send me an email, and I'll check out what's going on. But uh, I'm pretty much everywhere I could find. Squirrel Chatter at ProtonMail.com. More than welcome your messages. Um, it's always nice to get encouragement. And yes, I am amused by the profanity-laced hate mail, which I haven't actually gotten much lately. It goes in waves. You get a bunch, and then you don't get any. I find the profanity-laced hate mail very amusing. Because if you don't have a sense of humor about that sort of stuff, you know, you have to. And Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can head on over to ChristianPodcastCommunity.com. Check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. You will find something worth listening to. I guarantee it or double your money back. 
So for complaints in that department, again, write to squirrelchatter at protonmail.com. All right, what we got coming up today is prayers from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer, a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ, and Monday Meanderings, because, yes, it is Monday. Hope you had a great day at church yesterday. We sure did. Um, we had a good day at church. Had uh, several friends visit. Um, took took a young couple out to, to dinner. Uh, and uh, so just, you know, the, the it's always fun to have people visit the church when you invite them and, and hope that they're, you know, I've got friends looking for a church. And I actually had two sets of friends show up yesterday that I had invited. So it was nice. Always nice. And uh, so, you know, hope you had a great day at church. We had a great message. Um, uh, Pastor Scott's been doing a, a topical series on what is a disciple, which is really, really good. And yesterday was uh, was how a disciple is. And my, oh, wow, that's not good. We'll have to wait a minute while my PDF expert updates on my iPad because that's where all my show notes are. That's weird. I've never had it do that in the middle of a show. Make sure I'm where I'm supposed to be. Scroll back to the top. Make sure this is the right day. Yeah, I didn't. No, 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 no. This is not my show notes for today. This is Friday's show notes. Why did it do that? And there we go, Monday, February 27th. Technical glitch. I don't know how that happened. Anyway, had a great day at school, uh, church, at school. Had a great day at school. Had a great day at church. Um, the message was from Luke 18, um, the parable of the, the woman and the unjust judge, talking about prayer. But the, uh, the emphasis was on praying for the kingdom. So we started in the Lord's Prayer with thy kingdom come, and then we were looking at persistent prayer. Um, it was a good message. Um, he's been doing this. It's a good series on what is a disciple, characteristics of a disciple. I don't know what he's calling it. <laughs> it's a good series. Um, this was the third message in it since he finished going through uh, first, second, and third John. So in, enjoy that. Uh, he's, a, he's an excellent preacher. I, I, I enjoy sitting under him. I enjoy his friendship and his fellowship, and we, we sure enjoy the people at Frenchtown Community Church. So I hope you had a great day at church, because we sure did. And I'm getting ready for Shepherd's Conference. This whole week is going to be packing and making sure everything's ready. i got to pick up the rental car on Saturday because I drive down. And I always drive down in a rental car because I don't need to put that kind of wear and tear on my own car. Um, Long road trips are, are hard on vehicles, and uh, rental cars are cheap in the winter. So there you go. It works out well. Um, I tore up my 2008 Nissan Versa running back and forth. No, it was 2010. I don't know what year it was. The little red Nissan Versa I had all through the 2010s that... Uh, I basically tore it up because I drove to Shepherd's Conference every year. And uh, so it's uh, it wore out. Had to replace the transmission three times. Uh, twice. Th 
it's on its third transmission. Uh, don't drive it anymore. Need to get rid of it. It's just taking up space in the driveway. But, uh, yeah. Uh, and what was I talking about? Shepherd's Conference. Yes. So, this week will be the last week before Shepherd's Conference. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I'm going to be gone. Pardon me. I'm going to be gone next week. And then the uh, week after, I'm not going to be back until like Wednesday. So just giving you a heads up that I'm not going to be here for like a week and a half. I'm not doing pre-recorded episodes um, because we don't have a Bible reading schedule to keep up with. So we don't have to do that. Um, so there will not be pre-recorded squirrel chatters, not doing best of shows, nothing of that. We're going to be dark for a week and a half during Shepherd's Conference. Now, as I have said on previous trips, I am taking equipment with me. I will have the ability to podcast from Southern California. And if I desire to do so, you may get a special edition of Squirrel Chatter, but don't count on it. Just want to let you know we're planning on being, being dark for a week and a half. Now, I might even do some interviews down there that will be played on later broadcasts when I get back. I don't know. But just letting you know that we're going to be a dark for a week and a half while I'm going down to Shepherd's Conference. And I've got to start doing laundry today. Got to get Mrs. Squirrel to cut my hair because it's starting to get pretty rangy and long. All those little things I need to do before I go on a trip. All right, folks, let us begin, as is our practice, with the prayer of confession from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. Let us pray. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which you ought to have done, and we have done those things which you ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. And now John MacArthur's daily readings from the life of Christ. Satan tests Jesus's ultimate allegiance. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, Matthew 4.8a. Satan's final temptation was a last-ditch effort to corrupt and derail Christ and his saving mission. The greatest of all adversaries sought to complete a sinister bargain in which extremely attractive and enticing possessions were offered to Jesus in exchange for his subservience to Satan. The location, a very high mountain, where Satan took Jesus no doubt allowed them to have a comprehensive view of the earth for hundreds of miles in every direction. But their vantage point was clearly spiritual and supernatural as well. They would have seen the power and dominance of Rome, the glories of Egypt, and the splendor of various Greek city-states. All the wonders of the ancient world, including the magnificence of Jerusalem, would have been included. As the king of kings, Jesus already had the rights to own and govern all the world's kingdoms. But Satan tried to twist that reality for his own purposes. 
He wanted Jesus to leap ahead of God's promised plan and reign as a king before it was fully time to do so, and at the unthinkable cost of worshiping him. If our enemy can tempt Jesus to be impatient and impulsive and grasp things prematurely, that is all the more reason for us to be on guard against such tactics, against such attacks. Ask yourself, timing is everything. And Jesus displayed an infallible sense of what to do and when in every situation. Is there anything in your own life that you're trying to speed ahead with, whether God wants you to slowing down or not? Find peace in his timing. It is always perfect, more perfect than we think, which was exactly part of Pastor Scott's message yesterday, that we should not be impatient with God because his answers to prayer and the timing of his answers to prayer are always perfect. Always. And everything that he has decreed for us is for our good and his glory. And we can have confidence in that. So even the no's that we get from God in prayer, those are perfect. And most of the time, what we want, and I'm not putting this on Jesus. Jesus was a different situation, obviously. He was the divine God-man and fully divine and fully man. And I believe he was impeccable. He was incapable of sinning. Um, and I, think I hold that doctrine very firmly. But just because he was incapable of sinning, that was not because... that His incapability of sinning revolved around his own character because his character was perfect and he had no no uh, sinful nature and flaw in that way. But we are impatient. We want what we want when we want it. And that is part of human nature, part of fallen human nature. And so we are impatient with God when we pray for things. But quite often, we're praying for things that are not in God's will for us. and Or we're praying for things that he has for us, but not yet. As in, thy kingdom come. We pray for the coming of the kingdom. We pray for the returning of the Lord. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Yet, you know, that hasn't happened yet. And Christian believers have been praying for that for 2,000 years. Well, guess what? Before the cross, before Messiah came, ever since Genesis 3, when God promised the Deliverer, the first promise of the Deliverer, ever since Genesis 12, when he promised Abraham that through Abraham every family of the earth would be blessed, ever since these promises of a Redeemer were first given by God, over 4,000 years ago, people were praying for the Messiah to come. But the scriptures say that at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. There's a, there's a time that is perfect. When the time was full, when the, everything was completed for the sending forth of his son, God's timing is perfect. And just as the, the timing of the first coming was perfect, the timing of the second coming will be perfect, will be perfect as well. 
All right, so that was Dr. MacArthur with a couple of my thoughts at the end, tying it back to yesterday's sermon from Pastor Scott. All right, Monday meanderings. Got a couple of good ones here. First thing is this this last couple of weeks, I've been following, uh, for 15 years, I pastored a Southern Baptist church. And I was involved not only in you know, my Southern Baptist church, I was involved in our local association of churches. I was less involved, but, but somewhat involved in the, the state convention. And I paid a clo- close attention to the national convention, although I was only able to attend one, um, which was a disheartening. I was there in 2018. And, uh, and, and this is the, here's, here's give you an idea. We're at this big hall in Dallas for the 2018 Southern Baptist Convention. And the first day, there was a motion that actually made it to the floor for a vote, which is unusual. The, the, way, the, the way the rules, the parliamentary rules are set up, they have an agenda when you show up. And there is very little that the messengers on the floor of the convention can do to alter or change the agenda. Um, they've got it tied up tight so that the, the elites at the top really do control the convention. It is not an open meeting as you would think it would be. Um, and, and so it's, it's very strictly re- controlled. Um, and at the 2018 meeting, on the first day, a, a motion got put forth to defund the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission. The ERLC, as it was, it was part of the, the ERLC was part of the political, um, how do I put this, back in the 80s. You had Jerry Falwell starting the Moral Majority, and it was really a push to get evangelicals to align with conservative politics, um, and 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 for a lot of good reasons. But you had this sudden political awareness. Um, it really is. It, it's kind of an interesting history. Prior to the seventies. Most evangelicals didn't vote. There was a there was a a sense in which um, you certainly had no you know no politic politicking in the evangelical wider evangelical church. Um, there was there was usually no you know no uh, sermons on politics or anything like that. But that started to change because 1972 was it or 73. When Roe v. Wade was handed down, that kind of served to wake up the church to the realities of politics. And I'm not saying there weren't Christians involved in politics. There were, but there wasn't a concerted effort to have the church involved in politics. Then, in 1976... You had a Southern Baptist man from Georgia running 
for president. And he really played on his position as a born-again Christian. And so in a lot of ways, Jimmy Carter got evangelicals to vote. And so, I mean, look back on that now. Yeah, Jimmy Carter, one of our most liberal presidents, got evangelicals to vote. Uh, and so abortion and Jimmy Carter, who I, I honestly still think Carter was our worst president, but looking at Obama and looking at Biden, it's a close run. Um, just saying. But looking at, at, at abortion, looking at Jimmy Carter, looking at all of that, you had Jerry Falwell and others starting the moral majority. And so you could say quite honestly, that Jimmy Carter got evangelicals to vote. Ronald Reagan got evangelicals to vote conservative. And the evangelical vote has been aligned with conservatism ever since. And it was in that atmosphere that the Ethics and Religious Liberty Council of the Southern Baptist Convention was formed. It was intended to be the lobbyist arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. And it was very much aligned with the moral majority and the conservative uh, political views, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the head of the ERLC for a long time was a man named Richard Land. And Richard Land got targeted, I think, for political reasons, or not political reasons, but for theological reasons. Um, but there were, there were people out to get rid of Richard Land. Well, Richard Land helped them by plagiarizing. And when the plagiarism scandal came out, he ended up resigning. Um, took a while, took a lot of, you know, pressure from, from everybody from the ground up. And Dr. Russell Moore was named to head the ERLC. And I remember having great hopes because what I knew of Russell Moore was he was, he worked for Al Mohler at Southern Seminary. I had heard him co-host or, or guest host for Al Mohler. Al Mohler used to do a, a daily radio show on Salem Radio called the Al Mohler Show. Um, I can still hear the, the theme music in, in my head. And he would do this uh, Salem Radio Show every day, Monday through Friday. And it was, it was a great show, and I used to listen to it all the time. He would do, basically his first segment would be the equivalent of the briefing podcast that he does now. And then his second and third segments, he would have a topic of the day. And it would be a, he would have a, you know, a guest on, or he would be talking about a specific topic. Um, great Great stuff, really. And then Wednesdays were always Ask Anything Wednesdays, where people could call in and ask theological questions. And those were, those were among my fun, favorite days. But I used to, just, we didn't have a Salem, uh, Salem uh, affiliate out here. And after my dad died, I would go in during the summer once a week to mow my mom's lawn. 
mom and dad had several acres and all of it was lawn and mom had a John Deere riding lawnmower. But after dad passed, you know, there really wasn't, and even while dad was in the hospital, I was doing it. But once dad passed away, I would go in once a week and have lunch with mom and mow her lawn. And I would always be listening to podcasts that I had downloaded. And I would, one of the ones that I would listen to quite often was the Al Mohler program. And Dr. Russell Moore had been guest host for Dr. Moeller when Dr. Moeller would be on vacation or, or, or something. And I liked what he said. One of the best books on temptation in the life of the Christian, Tempted and Tried by, by Russ Moore. Great book. I, I learned a lot from it. It was very formative for me. So I had, I had very fond opinions of Russell Moore and was, was very happy to see him become head of the ERLC. Well, I did not know Russell Moore's history. I did not know that before he got into the ministry, before he got into Christian academia, working at, at Southern Seminary, before all of that, he had been a staffer for a Mississippi, I think it was Mississippi, a Democrat congressman in Washington, D.C. So he had been in Washington on the Democrat side. And I think what happened was once he got back in Washington with the ERLC, once he started you know, visiting with politicians, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I think he, he reverted back to his Democrat roots. And the ERLC really became a liberal group. And they were, they were uh, so in, in uh, and, and Russ Moore became a, an ardent never-Trumper. I, I don't think he, there was a Democrat policy he didn't like. So he was advocating for, for all sorts of Democrat policies. And this was the Southern Baptist lobbying arm. So at the 2018 convention, there was a motion put forward to defund the ERLC, stop giving them money because of their Democrat politics. Well, that afternoon the vote was held and the funding for the ERLC was upheld. And so the ERLC continued to exist. The very next day, the same messengers who voted to maintain funding for the increasingly leftist ERLC, the same messengers stood up and cheered for Vice President Pence as he was extolling the virtues of President Trump because Vice President Pence addressed the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, but so, the, but, you know, it was one of the, the weird things that you actually had something from the floor come to a vote, but at the same time, I'm like, the, the, the messengers that voted to retain funding for the ERLC sure haven't been paying attention because these are the same messengers that were clear, cheering for, for uh, Vice President Pence and for President Trump. It's like, okay, these guys are, are 
the, the, the rank and file messengers were ignorant of what was really going on. Nobody's been paying attention. And I've seen the same thing happen at every Southern Baptist convention since. Um, I guess I, I was not aware before I actually attended one just how rigorously controlled they were as far as business meetings go. And I understand. I mean, something about a, a meeting that size, you have to have some sort of control. They're only, it, it only lasts three days, I think, every year um, with messengers from, school, from churches all over the country. So, but me that as it may, at the last one, one of the things that's been put forth, the Baptist Faith and Message clearly says that um, the office of pastor is limited to men by Scripture, which it is. And this was adopted in 2000. So it's a 23-year-old statement of faith. Um, where the the thing I, I don't yeah the the woman pastor thing wasn't added in '63 I don't think there were there are three major divisions of the Baptist faith and message there was a 1925 Baptist faith and message and then there was 1963 Baptist faith and message and then the Baptist faith and faith and message 2000 and I think it was the 2000 one that added the thing about the office of pastor because women pastors was becoming a contentious issue. Um, because having women pastors in a church shows a complete disregard for the scriptures. And so having women pastors in the church is very indicative of a lack of biblical fidelity. And we see that in the fact that all of the denominations that have allowed women pastors have gone extremely liberal. Because once you reject the Bible on one thing you don't like, guess what? You're going to reject the Bible on a lot of other things you don't like either. And so having seeing women pastors ordained is one of the key signs of a apostating you know, denomination. And in the conservatives' resurgence that took place in the 80s, one of their big things was heading off the egalitarian trends in the Southern Baptist Convention. And, and that, so it was a, it was a contentious, uh, contentious issue from the time the conservatives took over the Southern Baptist Convention in the late 70s, early 80s. So... Anyway, all of that to say, Rick Warren's Saddleback Community Church, Rick Warren was retiring, and they named as, named to succeed Rick, a couple, husband and wife couple, as co-pastors. And so a motion had been made, had been put forward at the previous Southern Baptist Convention that... Saddleback Community Church should be disfellowshipped, which is kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention. At the last SBC meeting, Rick Warren was allowed to give, what, a 10 or 15 minute chest pounding, look how great I am, you can't kick me out speech 
Um, it really was uh, an exercise in hubris. And if you go back and watch it, it's on YouTube. It, it, it was shockingly vain and very much in the, uh, in the, uh, in the tradition of, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like other men. Um, just to give you a, you know, a, a point of view, I said, go, go watch it. I'm not going to link it in the show notes. You have to go find it. Just look at Rick Warren and 2022 SBC meeting. You'll find it. Well, they tabled the um, motion to expel or disfellowship Saddleback, and they created a committee to explore the meaning of the word pastor. And I'm sorry, if you don't know the meaning of the word pastor, you probably shouldn't be in ministry, let alone leading a denomination. Just saying. So that was part of the thing. The other part of the thing that happened was this sexual abuse task force that had been set up. And there was a report brought forth that had been put together by a research organization. I'm not sure exactly what they are, research consultant type organization called Guidepost Solutions. And Guidepost Solutions is, has become kind of a specialist in this sort of sexual abuse research, how to respond to it stuff. So Guidepost Solutions, their report was brought out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, people started looking at Guidepost Solutions, and they're a huge LBGTQ-affirming organization. And so questions have been raised about Southern Baptist support of Guidepost Solutions. And just a few weeks ago, a new report came out of the executive committee that they had extended the contract with Guidepost Solutions for setting up the website for the Sexual Abuse Task Force. And there were all these things about how, you know, sexual abuse complaints were supposed to be handled. Guidepost Solutions runs the hotline that people use to call in to report sexual abuse. And, and so, but everybody's like, why are we dealing with this group? Because they're hugely LGBTQ affirming. And so there's been a lot of discussion about the Southern Baptist support for guidepost solutions. As I said, I'm not, I am no longer Southern Baptist. I can't see myself becoming Southern Baptist again. Um, we're, we're right now attending a, excuse me, we're attending a, an independent Bible church and we're very happy there. And I am doing itinerant preaching for churches in, in a, our local network of independent Bible churches. And I'm working at our local network of independent Bible churches summer camp. And I'm just having a blast. And so I don't see myself ever going back to a Southern Baptist church. I'm not saying God couldn't have other plans, but it's not something that is leaping up in my mind and it's not on my to-do list. So I am not a Southern Baptist. Um, matter of fact, before we, we had to close Parkside for economic reasons, I had been 
pretty much convinced that we were moving away from the Southern Baptist Convention and we probably were not going to be a cooperating church for much longer anyway. Be that as it may. So, this report came out and everybody's up in arms about guidepost solutions and their LGBTQ affirming thing. Well then, just about a week ago, the executive committee came out with a report saying that they were disfellowshipping Saddleback and five or six other Southern Baptist churches that had women pastors on staff. And so that created a big furor and shifted everybody's attention to the, the women pastor thing. And we were all going, what about this committee that was supposed to study it and report back in June? Um, and so I'm just going to tell you what I think happened. I think they were getting so much heat over guideposts that they did this in order to divert attention, um, try to take the heat off. And for about a week it did. But then the attention swung back to guideposts and how much money the SBC is giving to them. And it's still up in the air and it's it's... I'm sitting back and popping popcorn and watching this. But I'm not watching it with any kind of glee. It makes me sad. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. Dad, you know, we lived in Atlanta. Dad was a deacon at a Southern Baptist Church when I was a little boy. And, you know, I was married in a Southern Baptist Church by a Southern Baptist pastor. My my daughter was baptized to the Southern Baptist Church. I mean, my wife was baptized to the Southern Baptist Church. I was baptized to the Southern Baptist Church. I I I have deep deep Southern Baptist roots, and it pains me to see what since the nineteen eighties, really, with the conservative resurgence, what had been a truly conservative body of believers sliding so rapidly away. And, and quite honestly, I believe the Southern Baptist Convention is running to catch up with the United Methodists in how liberal they can be. Churches are leaving. Churches have been leaving even before last year's convention, but the failure to elect Tom Askell to the convention last year um, that has caused a lot of churches to leave the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, I know some churches that are still in the Southern Baptist Convention who are talking about leaving. But big churches like Praise Mill in Atlanta, Josh Bice's church, they left the Southern Baptist Convention before the last convention. Because, I mean, I first met Josh at the SBC in 2018. Um, we've, we've become... If not friends, we've become, a, you know, good acquaintances. Um, I, I have, I have no doubt I could get a hold of him today if I needed to talk to him about something. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing him at Shepherd's Conference next week. So there's a, you know, big thing about, you know, that that this was a big church. I mean, the G3 conference that that Praise Mills. You know, G3 Ministries is part of Praise Mills Church, or I think it's a separate organization now, but it was the G3 conference was started entirely by Praise Mills Church. 
and and Dr. Bice. And to have that organization leave the Southern Baptist Convention, not only did they leave the Southern Southern Baptist Convention, they they started the G3 Church Alliance. And so they're starting an association of like-minded churches in direct competition to the Southern Baptist Convention, in direct opposition, because they're holding to biblical conservative principles. So all of that to say the Southern Baptists are in trouble. It grieves me. Um, I don't know that there's any recovery from this. Um, like I said, churches have already left. There are some, there are some important churches that are still hanging on. Uh, Tom Buck's church it hasn't decided to leave yet. Um, Tom Askell's church hasn't decided to leave yet. But if things keep going the way they are, I predict that they will. And as I said, some big churches have, have already left. Muscle, Muscle Shoals, some others. You know, some of them are big churches. And in addition to the big churches that have left, a lot of little churches have left. Um, I haven't been Southern Baptist in a while, but I'm still plugged into the networks. And I see a lot of the chatter that's going on. And I see the open letters to the convention that our church is no longer to be considered a church in cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention. So this is happening. And it is sad. But here's the thing. Most of the churches in the SBC are still, I believe, solid. It's some big churches that aren't. Um, I mean, I know Saddleback hasn't been solid in forever. Um, I think most people didn't know, even know they were Southern Baptist. Um, they, they didn't put anything SBC on their sign, I can tell you that. Uh, Saddleback Community Church, they didn't even own the, the title of Baptist, let alone Southern Baptist, but they were. Um, I mean, honestly, the Southern Baptist Convention pushed the 40 Days of Purpose thing. Um, that was when I first really heard of Rick Warren. And I know a lot of, I, I, I have known a lot of pastors who were doing Rick Warren wannabe churches. And, you know, it saddened me, but that, that was a big thing for a while. I think it's fading away rapidly, but that was a big thing for a while. And so I, I've known a lot of fans of Rick Warren. You got, you know, other, um, now I'm not sure if Elevation is actually considered Southern Baptist or not. That's Stephen Furtick's church. But Stephen Furtick graduated from Southern Seminary in Louisville. Um, but he's a rank heretic. I mean, denies the Trinity. Don't go to Elevation. <laughs> don't play their music. <laughs> That's it. Don't play, don't play Bethel, Hillsong, or Elevation music. And that brings us to our second topic today um, in a roundabout way. So what should we do with the public education system? 
the public education system is anti-God. It's not neutral. The, the, the public education system is promoting a godless worldview. It is working diligently against biblical values. It's destroying children. Where do you think all these kids are getting these ideas that they're transgender? It doesn't come from their parents, most cases. You know, there are a few instances, obviously, but for the most part, this is being pushed by our school system, starting in the first grade. All of these high school kids and junior high kids that have decided they're quote-unquote transgender over the last five, six years, they started being indoctrinated in first and second grade. And that indoctrination is now bearing fruit. And you watch like libs of TikTok and some of the videos that, that they play they point out where teachers are coming forward and saying things that that are just shocking. And I'm thinking that that just a generation ago, those people wouldn't be allowed to be teachers. They wouldn't be allowed anywhere near our children. And yet now they're the ones driving the system. And so the American education system is in bad, bad straits. And I have been saying repeatedly for years, I mean, I did a whole week last year on the education system, if you remember that, where I talked about all of these issues. And I've seen it firsthand because I'm, I drive bus for the local school district. You know, I still drive bus for the local school district. That may stop if they ever watch these podcasts. Um, but, I mean, I did have to go talk to the district supervisor once about when I made some comment about the school mask policy on Facebook. I didn't back down. I said, do what you have to do. And I ended up still driving bus. So that's just the way that is. But the, the school system is in, it's damaging our nation. It's damaging our culture. And I tweeted out on the 25th. Let's see, today's the 27th. This will been Friday. No, 25th have been Saturday. I said, quite frankly, the American education system from kindergarten through college needs to be scrapped and rebuilt from scratch. Not going to happen, but it should be done. Right now, the church needs to make Christian education a priority. I seriously agree with that. The church needs to make Christian education a priority. But then uh, Dr. Scott Annual from G3, who is also a professor at GBTS and who last summer I took his theology of worship class over the summer semester. Fabulous class. Read his books. He's the editor and vice president and editor, executive vice president and editor in chief at G3. So he's in charge of their book publications. He's in charge of their website blogs that get published. He's the chief editor and a smart guy and, and, and somebody who, who I'm, I have a growing friendship with and appreciate because he is, he is a great guy. 
And and he that that theology of worship class made me think about a lot of things that I had never thought about before. Because it's stuff that had never been taught to me before. And it was eye-opening in a lot of ways. And it's changed my attitude about worship and how we ought to do church. Um, recently, the, the I've tweeted it out. If you haven't watched it, um, I believe it was the last one, Conversations in Black and White, um, which is about the printed page, not about the fact that Virgil... Walker's black and Scott Annual's white. <laughs> so don't think it's any kind of racial thing. It's not. They're talking about the printed page, black and white. But Conversations in Black and White with with Virgil Walker and Scott Annual is one of the regular G3 podcasts. And they just did one on the fact that a year ago, Dr. Annual wrote an article on the G3 blog. He actually wrote a series of three articles. He wrote a series of three articles. The first one being stop playing Hillsong, Bethel and Elevation music. And then he did two follow-up articles. And in, in basically where he says that the, you know, that art, including music, but all art actually reflects a worldview and then he contrasted worldly music and godly music. And it, uh, those three articles are fantastic. Um, his, his little book, The Biblical Basis for Corporate Worship, I highly recommend. I gave a copy to my pastor. Great stuff. If you haven't gotten that, pick it up and read it. It's put out by Free Grace Press. And, and just a great book. And then his big book, Changed from glory into glory. Oh, fabulous, fabulous. These were required reading for our class and, and just eye-opening to me. Anyway, all of that to say, Scott replied to my tweet, that I, the tweet I just read. And he said, no need to rebuild it. God never gave government the task of education. That's the family's job. And he's absolutely right. He is absolutely right. And... This is one of the reasons, just Deuteronomy 6, the, the, you know, teaching your child as you get up and as you lie down, as you go out and as you come in, constantly teaching them the things of the Lord. That's the family's responsibility. It's the family's job to see the children are educated. It's the family's job to oversee the children's education. I mean... Obviously, not every parent is going to be able to teach particle physics to their kids. Um, but there's, there are ways around that. There, you know, there, there is, you know, there's nothing wrong with having teachers and having schools. But the public education system really needs to be scrapped because it is destroying American society and American culture. He tweeted later that same day, this is, again, Scott Annual's tweeting. Um, and he's at Twitter, at Scott Annual, S-C-O-T-T-A-N-I-O-L. If you don't follow him on Twitter, you should. And he gets a lot of pushback because he's very much in the conservative end of worship theology. And there's a lot of pushback um, because there are a lot of people that want a religious-themed rock concert every week. 
they don't want to think about biblical structures of worship and the biblical way that, that worship is to be put together. And there's a lot of it's just knee-jerk reaction. If you say anything about, you know, not not only Bethel and Hillsong, but, you know, some of the, you know, he, he, he goes off on the Maranatha music that came out of the Calvary Chapel movement in the late 60s, early 70s. And I've got a Maranatha songbook around here, and some of those, I mean, those were the songs I was singing at camp when I was growing up. And and so that's something to to think about. But he he quote he tweeted this later that day. He said God created human institutions and tasked them with specific functions. The family is tasked with education and health care. Now he's not saying that every family has to have a doctor in it, but what he's saying is that that's the family's job to treat injuries and illnesses or find them and have them treated. Government's job is to punish wrong and protect the innocent. That's clear. Their sphere of responsibility is to to punish wrongdoers and to protect the nation. So military and police forces and courts of law and punishing of wrongdoers that's the God-given job of government. The God-given job of the church is to, you know, he says relationship with God. And that's right, you know, go therefore and make disciples of all the earth or all the nations, teaching them, you know, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's the church's job, the faithful proclamation of God's word. And he says, when one institution begins to creep into another institution's duties, problems occur. And just think about the problems that have come up in our healthcare system. You know, I know a doctor when Obamacare passed, I, I, my doctor actually, he was close to retirement age, but he wasn't there yet. And he was a good doctor, he was inexpensive. Um, I had gone much of my adult life without health insurance. So I was going to the doctor and paying my bills. And he was an inexpensive but good doctor. And so we would go to him and, and his, his wife was his nurse. <laughs> and he had a receptionist. So it was just a three-person office, little storefront doctor's office. And I would go in and have my annual physical and... and you know, it'd only be a couple hundred bucks, and there there it was. So it wasn't that I wasn't being treated or I wasn't being looked at. But when Obamacare passed, part of the provisions of Obamacare was that doctors were no longer allowed to take direct payments. They could only take insurance. Well, I think 90% of his business was direct patients, direct payments, from uninsured people. And he ended up, I'm just going to take retirement. And so he retired. I said, he was old enough. He could do that. And so his, his doctor's his medical practice shut down. And he was not alone. Because now, according to the law, 
The only way to pay for medical care is through insurance. And according to the law, everybody is required to have insurance. And so, of course, we have insurance, and you have insurance, and everybody else has insurance. And the insurance keeps going up and up and up, and the medical, the quality of the medical care is going down and down and down. And it's true. It's absolutely true. So the government got involved in something that wasn't the government's prerogative. And when you look at the national healthcare systems in like Canada and England and stuff like that, they're rife with problems, rife with problems. Why do you think so many Canadians used to, or at least maybe still do, I don't know how things have changed, but they would come to the United States to have medical care because they could just come down and pay for it and they wouldn't have to wait. A lot of that's changing. But we're talking about education. And to get back to talking about the education system, it is the parents' duty to provide for their children's education. It's not the government's. And the government schools are anti-family and anti-God. And so why should we support them? Why should we support them with our you know, why should we give them our students? Why should we give them our children to be molded into the image of the world? Vody Bakum has said it very, very well. If you send your children to Caesar to be educated, don't be surprised when they come back as Romans. And that's what we're seeing. And so, you know, that's why I'm a huge advocate of homeschooling and I'm a huge advocate of of uh, solidly biblical Christian schools. And I believe strongly that this should be, in this day and age, one of the prime areas that the church focuses on as a ministry. Um, you know, to go therefore and make disciples. I see a mandate for Christian education. And I think the school, the churches need to get much more behind Christian education than they are now. Now we're seeing a shift. We're seeing a move toward that. And I'm not saying that every, every Christian church should have a school, but, you know, local associations of biblically conservative churches could get together and start a school. Uh, you know, I mean, if, if every 10 or 12 biblically conservative churches supported a school, you, you'd have a network of solid biblical schools across the country. And like I said, this was something that the Roman Catholics did very, very well prior to the 1960s because they were concerned that the American public school system was teaching Protestantism. And so they started the network of Catholic schools and 80% of the children of Roman Catholic families went to Catholic schools. That was up until very recently because the parents were concerned about education contrary to the religion they were teaching their children. And I think that 
Bible-believing Christians can learn from the Roman Catholics on this and should, you know, be establishing networks of solid biblical private schools. And not only establishing the networks, but subsidizing them so that families can afford to send their kids. We're not talking about high-priced private schools here. We're not talking about elite education here. We're talking about the children that are of the families that are in our pews and keeping them away from the godless education system that is now ruining our country and ruining our children. And yes, I'm going to keep harping on this because I think it's something that's very, very, very important. All right, finally, rewriting classics for PC purposes. We talked about uh, last week the, the fact that they wanted to reissue the Raw Dahl books that were going to be toned down and, and the, the sensitive, politically incorrect language was going to be changed. Well, now it comes out that the same thing is happening to Ian Fleming's James Bond books. This is from the, the New York Post. Ian Fleming's James Bond books have been rewritten with modern audiences in mind, with so-called sensitivity experts removing a number of racial references ahead of 007th's 70th anniversary this spring, the Sunday Telegraph reported. So the New York Post is reporting the, the London Sunday Telegraph and that the, the Ian Fleming books have now been rewritten. The James Bond books are being made politically correct. My thought is, how does a sensitive reader, quote-unquote, even get fact, even get past the fact that we're dealing with a book series about a government assassin? I would think a sensitive reader wouldn't even be able to approach the genre because oh, he kills people. Yeah, just putting that out there. I'm hoping that the backlash that took place against the Raoul Dahl rewrites, because their publisher backed off, they are reissuing the originals. They are not going to, it says right now they're going to put them, they'll be side by side. You'll have the new sensitive versions and the originals will still be in print. And my thought is the new sensitive editions will fade into obscurity relatively quick and people will get talking about it. I'm hoping the Ian Fleming publishers get the same pushback. Um, this is a concerted effort to erase our history. These are books that were written in the 50s and 60s, and they reflect a culture of the 50s and 60s, just like books written in the 30s reflect the 30s. Books written in the 1800s reflect the 1800s. And we don't need to rewrite them for modern sensibilities. Modern people need to be less full of themselves and understand that these books were written at a different time. And if you can't handle it, don't read them. But don't rewrite them. And I'm not saying that, that James Bond is classic literature, but, you know, it is. <laughs> um, very, very culturally relevant for the period of the 1960s, 1950s, the Cold War, are the James Bond books. 
And they were never intended to be politically correct. And to try to make them politically correct is absolutely silly. And so I, I, I just put that out for you. All right. Well, that's Monday Meandering. Let's end with the Apostles' Creed and the Collect for Grace. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now the colic for grace. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings may be ordered by thy governance to do always that is righteous in thy sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, folks, have a great Monday. Thanks for being with us. Remember to do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. See you again here tomorrow for another episode of Scroll Chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.